Hey everyone, Matt Barker here, wishing you a very warm welcome to our Senior Roundtable, where Erin Madonna, Laurie Vaughan, and I chat about round tables. Just kidding. In our virtual roundtable, we talk about the topics our Special Education Network and Inclusion Association are interested in. Hey everybody, Erin Madonna here. Today's topic is all about sensory integration and processing. And while that would be exciting enough on its own, I have the awesome privilege of introducing a very special guest to you. Kira Luangangun is an occupational therapist who has been working in Thailand for the last nine years. She balances her time between her private practice and as our resident OT at International School Bangkok. In the short time that I've worked with Kira, I've developed a tremendous amount of respect for her. Not only is she super knowledgeable, but she approaches her work with remarkable empathy and care. It is an absolute honor to have her join us today. Welcome, Kira. Hi, everybody. <laughs> hey, hey. Let's so nice also... to be here. Thank you. <laughs> we are so happy that you're with us. And let's also take a moment to welcome back the two brilliant minds who make this virtual roundtable go round. Lori Bull and Matt Barker. Hi, you two. Hello. I think we're both hey. laughing at the brilliant minds. <laughs> brilliant. <comment. laughs> I had to sneak that in there. What are you? <laughs> it's my one anyway. chance to like shine. <laughs> I'm all ready for the sensory talk. I'm sat on my exercise ball as we speak, so you might have noticed me bouncing somewhat. So if my sound comes in and out, I do apologize, but I am just self-regulating. <laughs> that is full commitment. Perfect. I love it. <laughs> okay, so it's no secret that we seriously geek all things sensory. So we're ready. Why don't we just get this party started? Let's jump right in. Do it. All right. Um, so I think to get us started, let's just sort of start with the definition, right? What does it mean when we say sensory processing or sensory integration? What are we talking about? Who wants to take it? <laughs> Kira? Kira's frozen. Oh, oh she might she... be frozen again. I oh, think that's okay. what's going on. All right, we'll start it off and then she'll jump in when she's ready. Um, so Matt, jump in, Lori, jump in. I think okay. when I hear sensory processing, I think about the fact that we as humans are sensory beings, right? The entire way we interface with the, with the world around us is through our senses. Um, hey, Kira, welcome back. Hi. Hey. I'm switching to a better location. Perfect. Uh, awesome, awesome. So we started She's off- She's also Kira regulating herself right now to do that. <laughs> That's right, I'm sweating. <laughs> Uh-huh. We started out talking, Kira, just our first question is just let's get us a, a definition of what we talk, what we mean when we say sensory processing um, or sensory in general. Um, what is that? Um, do you want to put in your two cents? Sure. Um, what we know typically that people have five senses. So the touch, the sight, the hearing, the smell and the taste. Um, but in occupational therapy or the sensory integration or sensory processing theory, we have two other senses, which are the vestibular sense and the proprioception sense. The vestibular sense tell us where our body is in relation to the gravity or the surface of the earth, like whether we're moving or tilted in any direction. And the proprioception is just our own body movement. Now, Erin, um, you wanted to add an extra sense? 
I did only because it's one that in my practice I've run into a lot. Um, The interception. Can you talk a little bit about that? Interception. Um, I'm not sure I'm saying it even right, Kira. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I think it is correct. It's it's the um, awareness of what's happening inside the body, like when you're hungry or when you need to use the bathroom. Um, And when we talk about sensory processing, we don't mean whether you feel or you don't feel certain senses, but it's more about how the brain processes the sensory input in the environment or in your own body, how the brain processes it and act in response to that stimulation. Yes. So that's okay, what that's we, a great. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great clarification for me because I think in the classroom, the way that I see that show up is that if a child, you know, becomes more hyperstimulated, right, or their energy level, they might, I've had students who um, will start to giggle or laugh or sort of lose their ability to stay kind of anchored in space and time with me. Um, And over time learned that, oh, when the child has to, you know, make a bowel movement and they're not aware of that, or when their body is too hot, um, that that can increase that level of stimulation. So that actually, that's that's helpful for me to understand that it's actually more about how the brain is processing those signals than not actually receiving right am I getting that no yes it's not like it's like it's not like you don't feel something you feel it but but the brain process it and then they they can interpret it differently and then so the adaptive response or the behavior or whatever is exhibited doesn't match the sensory input or stimuli. Okay. I'm loving this already. Yes, I we- <laughs> always geek out as well when we talk about sensory integration and I always learn something. So I've already got my takeaway today and we're five minutes in. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> can we can we actually the the words so sensory processing and sensory integration? What's the difference between those, Kira? Um, so the sensory integration is a, um, I would say, politically correct term, because it's a theory that was invented by Dr. A. Jean Ayers, who was also an occupational therapist and a neuroscientist. So she invented this theory. And, and it's something that if you want to use the practice, you have to go through sensory integration training. Most occupational therapists Um, doesn't go through that training. So we use the term sensory processing instead for a general kind of approach to sensory. But it's, you know, you you remind me of of a school when I was working at just a decade ago now, but I believe we had maybe five or six occupational therapists working at the school because it was a school for children with speech, language and communication needs. And I remember that every time they hired an occupational therapist, they did need to take on the sensory integration training because a lot of them did not have it. But I knew that was one of the requirements of the school was for them that they would train them or or make sure that they got trained in that specialist area because it's so key to a lot of the work that they did with our students with uh, speech, language and communication needs. Yes, in in my study, I uh, they give you the basics, but if you want the certified training, then you have to um, mm. get it. <laughs> yeah. <Yes>. So that <laughs> goes usually... to show you know there's specialisms within the specialism, right? 
Yeah, well, and how valuable, because I think here, one of the points when we were sort of preparing for this chat that you brought up that sort of resonated, I think for all of us is the fact that like, when we talk about sensory stuff, we're talking about every human on the planet Earth, right? That we are That's sensory right. beings. Yes. So we, we all have things that we prefer, like the sensations that we prefer. We like certain smells, you know, the scented candles. We like going to um, get a massage, certain fabrics that we want to wear. So we all have that, those preferences. Um, but, you know, when, when we talk about a child or an individual who have sensory processing problem, it's more like their preference is very limited <laughs> mm. or, or, you know, um, so I, I can think of a couple of examples when you say that. Yeah. Or, or the preference is impacting like their daily routine or their participation in, in class, in the classroom or, you know, causing problem in everyday life. Basically that's when we say there is a sensor processing um, and is that challenge that what we're what we're recognizing in the classroom that is that sort of what the child is is struggling to you know whether integrate or whatever the language that we're using but if when that child is in that moment is that what we're calling dysregulation so at that point yes. that child is dysregulated so what happens can you can you tell us a little bit and I'm Matt I want to hear your examples too because I think being able to connect this to the practical mm. you know what does it actually look like in our classrooms is hugely helpful. So, yeah. so just a couple, yeah. yeah. So, so if I just give a couple of the examples, and then maybe we we could dig deep into that science a bit more. But the kind of things I'm thinking of are the students who have particular diets, who cannot eat particular types of food, or have a very repetitive uh, lunchbox, if you like. And then I'm also yeah. thinking of students, uh, and I, I remember one student in particular who had fine and gross motor dyspraxia and very, very uh, dysregulated. And he had a huge sensory diet to support him. But in the afternoon, he literally did not know where his body ended and something else began. So he would sit next to me, but he would rest himself up all against the side of my body just so that he could figure mm. out where he finished and I started. So there's yeah. two very contrasting examples, but I think those are the types of things that you might see when when a children when a child is dysregulated. So, yes. Um, so I'm going to try my best to explain <laughs> it. <laughs> um, so we have an optimal level of like um, being able to function or our attention span. Um, now, if you have, uh, say, a, a different threshold to to receiving, perceiving sensory input. So it's either you have a very high threshold or you have a very low threshold. You know, um, your attention and focus or your ability to engage in any kind of activity is, is affected because of that um, low, too low or too high threshold. Um, when, uh, I'm gonna go to your example first, Matt. Um, if a child has a, a very picky, uh, is a very picky eater, mm. it could, uh, eating require a lot of sensory like system in your body. It, it requires the movement, your, uh, the taste, the smell, visually seeing the food. So it could be that the child may be very 
I have very low threshold to to you know food texture. So mm. certain food texture is very difficult for this child to ingest, and then uh, it the problem that it causes is that it affects his or her nutrition balance, nutritional yeah. balance. Yes, and that's that is a sensory um, issue that we can try to resolve and expand um, the threshold so that he she can eat more food yes and, and then talking about, oh, go for yes. it. Finish. no 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 go for it finish i just want to ask um really quick is this connecting i'm trying to connect the dots as you're going and does this have yes. anything to do with when we think about sensory seeking or sensory avoiding is that connected to that threshold that that child experiences yes the threshold is um about the seeking and avoiding yes so so if you have a very low threshold it means you are hypersensitive to a lot of things you can be hypersensitive to um, touch you can be hypersensitive to movement um, now if you have a very high threshold it means you are hyposensitive. so you need a lot to to make you reach your threshold and <laughs> yes. So, so now a sensory seeker has very high threshold. So they seek more input to reach their threshold. While a sensory avoider knows that he or she has a very low threshold, thus trying to avoid, you know, firing their sensory system too much. Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. they're both in the same class with 20 other students. And Each with can, their own needs, right? Yes, yes. And you can even be both a seeker and an avoider, but two different kind of stimuli. Right. Yes. I remember I once had one student who, I know I'm sitting on a gimbal now, but I had one student who literally had to sit on a gimbal and would be in class bouncing up and down, as you can probably hear from my voice, constantly. And it was really hard. At one point I had to ask him to stop because I was feeling giddy and quite sick from just watching that watching because I'm incredibly it, yes. sensitive <laughs> with, you know, with my ears and balance. It's, you know, I'm the sort of person. So, so for example, to use me as an example about some of my sensory dysregulation, if you were to put me in a swimming pool on a lilo, I would want to vomit. I mean, I get so dizzy and, and <laughs> yeah. sick. What what is going on for me there? Because I think I'm dysregulated in some way. And I, I was told by an OT to put my hands down hard on my head because that would help me, but I don't know why. <laughs> it, it's probably the vestibular sense for me right. from from what i'm hearing because mm -hmm. the vestibular sense is about is about balance and, and movement and you know also also maybe visual when you see things um yeah. moving in a certain direction and then it stimulates you because the vestibular system is the prime system uh, it primes our whole nervous system if you feel mm. car sick or seasick the yes, rest of yes, the system yes, doesn't yes doesn't cooperate with you. <laughs> yeah. So. And and Kira, all of this, of when we're when we're talking about all these different experiences that we kind of experience along the spectrum from, you know, avoidant to seeking or hyper or hypo, um, it's all neurological in basis, right? So it relates to our nervous system within our body. Yes. Correct? Is that I, yeah, the okay. Okay. Yeah. And I think that's really important. Um just to to think about as classroom teachers or, or 
anyone really working with people who are having such a hard time or who are dysregulated because that if you think about that that hierarchy of um, learning and everything, the central nervous system is at the bottom of that and that everything needs to be in place um, at the very top of that hierarchy of, of learning or, or the systems is that academic learning. So that sensory needs to be in place first. And so often as, as teachers in the classroom, I think we forget that. You know, we're, we're all about that academic learning and we might see that kids are dysregulated out there in our, in our groups, but we don't necessarily take care of it, right? Um, and so, so what are some things we should be looking for, do you think, Kira? Um, well, in our question. classrooms, um, you know, we're, we're up there, we're teaching, we want them to learn, 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 but we might see what? I think that's such a, that's a great question. And I think yes. I just want to add to that because as teachers, we constantly have the ability to regulate ourselves around a classroom. And yet we're not always allowing the students to do what they need to regulate. Yes. Um, I would say first to, to assume, like to, to make a positive assumption when you see a child appearing to not be listening or moving or you know um not sitting still i i would say first assume that they are trying to regulate themselves and there's a need for movement you know there are different types of learner some might be auditory learners so they listen well but some might be kinesthesia learner kinesthetic learner so they need to move in order to learn and um when we see behaviors like that in the classroom, if if we see it positively, and then we know that that's when you can do a little break, or give them a movement break, and then they would access your learning material better. And I, I think it benefits both you and the student to to so, you know so address like the sensory student, issues. Kira, the kid who is getting up out of their seat and sharpening their pencil or going to the bathroom quite frequently or who's walking around, you know, and just, or, you know, their motor sort of appears like it's running high, that might be sensory dysregulation or um, the child who is touching a lot of things around them and is playing with their, their neighbors, you know, items on their table or like, if we're thinking about typical kind of classroom behaviors, a lot of those could be explained as that child's comfort in their in their space is not quite where it needs to be right that's right um if if you see you know behaviors like tapping the pencil on the table rocking on the chair twisting their hair it's actually all, all these things we also do when we try to regulate ourselves we have to think back when we you know, go to school when we are in a lecture room at university or whatever. These things we do to try to stay awake and try to learn. So the students do the same, but, um, and, you know, there, if, if you see these stuff, you can try to observe and, and see what the behavior is actually giving them. For example, if they're rocking on the chair, um, 
remember when I said vestibular was about moving uh, the, the movement of the head, that may, might mean that they're seeking some vestibular movement. And, and if you're able to provide that sensory input, not just to that student, but maybe to the whole class or you know, even giving yourself a little break to just do an exercise all together and then we can all learn a little bit better. Do you know, I worked with an OT once, Kira, who told me that that vestibular sense, one of the simplest things you can do in the classroom is just turn their chair around and have them straddle it like it's a horse, um, because then ah. they can move their body without the danger. Because so often teachers stop students when they're rocking because the yes. fear that they'll fall or fear. hurt themselves, right? And so yeah. she said, well, it stabilizes the chair. Just turn the chair around and straddle it. And then that child can provide themselves that stimuli, but in a safer way, it's a more stable way. So even small tweaks like that within the classroom can help support that regulation. I know of one teacher who stuck Velcro underneath the table. Yes. Oh, so they yeah. Could just feel the Velcro under the table. <laughs> yeah. I used to have little card systems in my room on the sentence strips that like kiddos could just like come and get out of like, we had a calm down center and when they needed it and they could just attach it to a belt loop or, you know, and stuff. And then they had different tactile, you know, textures mm. that they could play with. And it was, and it never interrupted their learning. Like it helps the learning to be regulated. Right. So providing those things, I think that's another fear that we as teachers often have is that, well, it's going to distract them from their learning. No, it's actually going to help them focus in more, right? If, right. if their body gets what it needs. Yeah, it, it's, it's also how you introduce the, um, the, the uh, object or the, the toy too. It's how you introduce it and the rules that you set, uh, how to use it in the classroom, you know, I think. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Because we've all seen fidgets turn into projectiles. So. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh, definitely. So can I, can I back us up? We've been talking a lot about dysregulation, but what can we do preventatively? So as a classroom teacher in my classroom, you know, rather than wait for students to get to the point where they're dysregulated because, you know, I, you know the, the room isn't set up for them, how can I better kind of create an environment where they're able to regulate um, what are some preventative strategies? And that's for everybody, because I know, Lori, you worked really closely with Kieran and have learned so much from her, everybody. So jump in, like, what can we do preventatively? <laughs> okay, so I'm going to start first. Um, to, to I, I would say, make sure to plan the lesson um, in chunks. So I would say not mm -hmm. like, you're not running like a really long lecture where they have to be still. Um, just know your your students like um, length of attention, I would say. Just give them a chunk of information and then we do a little bit of movement. Like all kids benefit from movement. So to have like regular movement breaks in between and in the classroom provide options for um, like what you mentioned, like you have fidgets that kids can access or, you know, um, ask them if they want the lights to be dimmed or, you know, ask them as a whole class, you know, so they know that they have a choice to kind of set the environment to, to what they learn best. Yeah. So, and that's thinking about that sensory load, right? Like helping kids cue into like, are the lights too bright for me? Is the sound right now too much? Do we all need to take a moment and just take a deep breath and 
um, if, if they're used to that language and that conversation around creating the environment that feels comfortable, then they'll be able to access yes. it when they become dysregulated. Okay. Yes, and and also also help them to communicate it better too. Like if if we you know ask them first, give them the language, provide them options, you know they can communicate so that they they know how they learn best rather than yeah. just you know have everything set in stone. <laughs> Kira, I think I, when you I, said, oh, go, Matt, go, go, go. Sorry, I, all I was going to say is I know sometimes, and particularly when I'm working with the older students, that I'll have a, a dialogue around what I'm seeing because they might be sat in a beanbag because they're tired. And, I, and not that we have beanbags at the moment, but when we did, <laughs> they might be sat in a beanbag <laughs> and they're tired and they're actually counterproductive. And I'd be like, can I tell you what I'm seeing when you were sat in this beanbag? And can I tell you what I saw when I when you were sitting in the chair? And and actually drawing attention and having the conversation with them about whether it's supporting their regulation or whether it's actually making them more dysregulated. So I think that's really yeah. helpful to to tell them what you're seeing or, or what do they notice within their own bodies, having that conversation with them. Because sometimes, you know, and, and maybe it might be that the student is just that tired and what might be more powerful for them is to have a nap for 10 15 minutes and let them come back you know it's 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 yeah. it's, it's tricky but it's about having that i think particularly with the older kids perhaps with a lot of kids all kids you know having the conversation where you can i think that's but so you, important yeah. and and i think about so much about the zones of regulation yeah um, yes. and just starting <laughs> to teach that at such an early age um and if you're in the blue zone um what can you do to help help yourself um, become more regulated. Or if you're really, really hyper and laughing and giggling, you know, you recognize that and, or with the help of an adult and, and use some of those sensory calm down strategies, right? So I think the zones of regulation is just brilliant and um, to incorporate in with that sensory piece. Absolutely. And that, and I think the preventative piece is all that pre-teaching that you're doing as a part of that. And, and Kira, what you had said about like setting up the parameters about this is the way, this is the expected behavior when accessing this tool or accessing this option, right? And this is in this classroom, how we're going to use it. We had, I, I was thinking that triggered a memory from my classroom back in the States where I had a student who was very much like large motor activities were necessary for him to be able to be in the room at all. He had to be, I mean, walking. And so we created a tape highway in the back of the room. And as long as he was moving on the highway, he could and not interrupting others learning like that was our rule in our classroom or our agreement, I should say, is that as long as you're not disrupting other people's learning, right, that you can access yeah. those. And he would walk miles every day, just back and <laughs> forth on that highway. But it, like the amount of you know, we think about, you know, when we're reactive, it often get, oftentimes it, it feels like it gets to that point where that child then is frustrating and that's when power struggles occur and things like that. So by taking these preventative steps, right, we avoid some of that. Yeah. And also it sounds awesome. like you're finding the behaviors or finding the regulatory mechanisms which work for the kids and work for the class, right? Because you, 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 yeah. You want to find what's right for the kid, but at the same time, it's got to be something which is not going to offset something else in the class. Yes. Oh my goodness. Those clicker fidgets. I had a kid who loved the one that had the, like, it was like a 
a clicker you actually had to push down, not just like a light switch on one side of it. And that thing went click, 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 click. And I had another student who auditory wise was just like so sensitive and was like, stop. And and that we had to have dialogue around like, maybe that's not the right fidget for quiet moments, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Remember those plastic popping bubbles? What are those called? Oh, yes. Yeah. And so one one of our students bubble wrap bubble wrap yeah one of our yeah. students loved the bubble wrap and the other <laughs> student would you know lose his mind when when um, we brought out the bubble wrap so yeah it's <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, and sometimes like even just like, so I think that concept of a sensory diet, I would love to sort of do a little veer off to the side and discuss a little bit like, what is that just so that we sort of can wrap our brains around that. But then that idea of it being sort of a time in the day that's scheduled, right? So like when you have children who, who like to access sensory, you know, activities that are challenging for other learners, maybe a sensory diet is a way to do that. So they gain access but it also isn't disruptive throughout the entire day. Yes, uh, um, I was going to mention because a sensory diet is an individualized program. So, so um, like what I mentioned earlier, we all have preferences in terms of sensory, you know, input. And this sensory diet, which is individualized um, for each student or each person is the sensory diet that they need something that they prefer something that will help make their nervous system more you know at the optimal level so um that's uh, and also to have it at a fixed time i would say (laughs) or when whenever the the sensory system is dysregulated you can also provide the sensory diet that they need, but to have it at a fixed time throughout the day, um, help the child to, to balance their, their sensory um, nervous system throughout the whole day. So there might be kids who get, um, who, who needs some diet before entering the classroom. So like after recess or after lunchtime, and they need to calm themselves down a little bit before they go back into the classroom. Maybe that's when, if possible, you can provide, you know, a short sensory break to give them the sensory diet that they need. It is a necessary for the nervous system, though the, the same way that, you know, food diet is to our body. So... Yeah. yeah, and we used to have, the great thing about um, our sensory room at ISB was it wasn't just for our students with intensive needs. Um, we had m- several students come in and use it for their sensory diet. Um, yeah. So one person would come in um, right after recess and um, use like the kinetic sand for calming um, before they went up to the classroom. So I I love having a sensory room in a school. I think it's an essential, essential. Yeah. And you know what, Lori, coming from, you know, settings that didn't necessarily have a sensory room, I think a playground can be a great alternative because we had, Mm -hmm. um, like in my last setting, we, you know, I had a a sensory motor space sort of connected to my office, but it was tiny and it wasn't fully developed. So we would go out to the recess field and even things like climbing ladders and, you know, and hanging and jumping, you know, on, you know, the bridge that sways and gives that sort of similar to a trampoline feel or things like that. Even, you know, sometimes 
activate. I've seen teaching teams just purchase a small trampoline to have in their quad for that sort of joint compression, you mm-hmm. know, that's sometimes needed and things like that. So, so well, it is I possible love those without sensory. That. I love those sensory pathways. The pathways, um, yeah. You know, right, right. As I was leaving ISB, I put in for a grant from the PTO. This is just a plug for you guys to follow through with it. And they approved the sensory pathways. So um, it's not too late. Um, You can ask them again, um, because I think it would be great to have one or two set up in the school for the students. What does the sensory pathway look like? What might that look like? Yeah, it's great. Yeah, well, there's all sorts of different themes and things, but they might have lily pads and that means you jump from lily pad to lily pad. And then they might have hands on the wall. So you have right. to like jump up and um, mm. hit your hands and match it. Um, uh, they might have numbers that you skip one, two, three, you know, and it's, you know, hopscotch, right? That's a yeah. sensory pathway right there. But um, this, these are all just creative little um, designs to help students meet their, their needs. So I think it would be great, you know, if a student's completely dysregulated, just be like, hey, why don't you go take two minutes out on the, on the pathway? Well, and it's, you know, there's so much research out there that like when you tell a student, oh, take a break, that that's actually pretty ineffective. I feel like we've even talked about that in a previous podcast, yeah, maybe, um, but something like a sensory path, right, provides a structure that's actually really purposeful. Um, right. Can we talk about some of the activities, Kira? I want to dig in a little bit. Like if we have a student who's, so I grew up with the, you know, I kind of grew up as a teacher, the beginning part of my career with the alert program. So that concept of like, which has now been absorbed into zone, right? Zones. But yeah. that idea of your internal motor running high or your internal motor is low, right? And so if I have a student who's in that high space, like yellow, red on the zones, you know, or they're just, you know, have a lot of energy, what are some great exercises that that child could engage in to sort of help them regulate in that moment if I don't have an OT on my campus? Yes, um, a mini, I'll go back a little bit to just our conversation there. So if a school or if we're whoever is listening um, workplace doesn't have a sensory room, you can use any space available and just, you know, it, it depends on the activity or, or how you adapt what you have in your environment to, to help the child um, with their sensory needs, especially with older kids, they, they wouldn't want to be doing, you know, go sit on the swing or, you know, climb on the monkey bars, but just, you know, little, little tricks and things. So we're going to talk about kids who, whose motor is running high first, right? So they need to exert that energy. So what I would recommend is any kind of like, um, jumping, um, lifting heavy loads, a little bit of jumping jacks, um, push-ups, you know, running up and down the stairs, maybe for a few times, those things can help exert the energy. And and for um, proprioception or, or, you know, the, the sense of movement to where your body is, joint compression really helps. Uh, calm their system down so if they can you know maybe hug themselves really tight roll around um, 
Oh, one trick I saw for, from the school, I'm talking about my gym ball again, it's getting featured really yeah. well, is that sometimes we would we would use the gym ball to, to squash kids. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. so basically they would lie down or stand against right beside a wall and then you would just press the ball push. against them to, yeah, yeah, or push yeah. down if they're lying on the floor. I mean, we also had squashing machines as well, but uh, that's yeah. sort of like a, a, a cheaper alternative to provide that sort of, and was it proprioceptive or vestibular? Is that one for uh, proprioceptive? So, proprioceptive, so when you're which is giving the deep pressure on the yeah. joints. Yes, as proprioception. Is that like the old, yeah. like the wheelbarrow, right? Where you pick up yeah. the ankles. That's another one for yes. that. Where you walk. Yeah. Okay. And that's Similar. great for handwriting as well, isn't it? Yes. As an aside. That's yeah. good for the shoulder <laughs> strength as well. Yes. The shoulder girdle. <laughs> If the kid's uh, bigger, you know, I, I have another trick. So they put their feet up on an office chair. So a chair that has wheels and then they just walk with their hands. So you don't have to do the lifting. Oh, oh, that's <laughs> nice awesome. one. I've not tried that. And it looks more like just like me. straight up exercise, right? So it's yes. <laughs> much cooler. <laughs> oh. And what about wall push-ups? Like is is that a proprioceptive yes, a, a wall push up uh, exercise yeah. as well yeah so that's good for the older and, kids or if or and another one yeah don't have a lot of i even like if you're sitting on the table like just trying to push yourself up like i'm doing now yes holding... that was... oh gosh <laughs> yes i was just about to say that very unsuccessfully <laughs> i wish that we had well i know done, i wish yeah. we had visual <laughs> on this podcast <laughs> I've gone very red in the face very fast. <laughs> so after we do, Kira, I have a question. Look, see, I'm veering us off. Here we go. So after we do those sort of large muscle, then like if I'm thinking about that child in the process of calming themselves back down to a place where they're ready to learn, is it valuable? I feel like I, lots of times you see students go, you know, enjoy the swing or rocking movements or sort of a repetitive. Is there is there a step down kind of activity after those large gross motors? tasks that you engage yes. them in? So, so I would say um, just reduce the sensory stimuli in the environment to, to the minimal, like maybe dim lights, lower your voice, um, use, you know, simple instructions, keeping the environment calmer, and then maybe they'll be able to, you know, regulate themselves, um, be a little slower, <laughs> awesome. Awesome. I think it's really important to be a detective too, like um, as a teacher and, you know, not everyone's going to have nonverbal students, but I'm thinking back to um, a student I've had in the past who is nonverbal and um, was showing a behavior every single time we sat down to reading. So, um, you know, of course our automatic thought is, oh, well, he doesn't like reading or, you know, this is hard for him. But what we discovered through time was we were setting him right in a spot in the room where the air conditioning was yeah. blowing <laughs> right on him. And so he was just like jumping all the time and just really, really ex excitable from what we were we're seeing, but once we realized that it was the air conditioner, we just turned off that air conditioner when we'd sit down to reading and voila, you know, <laughs> so, yeah. but that took a really yeah. long time to understand because we made that assumption that he didn't like reading, you know, instead yeah. it's starting from the beginning of like, huh, why is this happening? 
Yeah. Yeah. it uh, we we don't realize a lot of a, a lot of things. I mean, sensory wise, because you know we were we uh, with our I would say typically working nervous system, we are able to filter out what we don't need. But a lot of our kids have difficulties filtering out these um, sensory input, and some are you know perceived more intense than what it actually is like maybe the sound of the air conditioning or maybe the temperature or the, the, the air that was coming onto his skin. So, you know, like, like you mentioned, Lori, we really need to observe and be a detective and, and to have a positive assumption first that maybe it's sensory before anything, like, you know, that maybe he doesn't like learning so I don't think any kid doesn't like learning. All kids want to learn and be right. better. Yeah. You know, I, just from a personal standpoint, um, you know, you all know I have this son with our, our son has very um, profound autism and, and sensory makes up his life. So I learned to be a sensory detective at, um, you know, when my son was like three years old, because um, you know, it was, it was everything. It was sucking on his shirt, um, uh, running around constantly. Um, the, you know, you mentioned Aaron, a bowel movement. And I, I think, you know, people might be like, oh, they're talking about poop, yeah. but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's so important because a lot of our students don't actually recognize when they need to use the, the restroom. And right. so we have to be that, you know, that detective, our son laughs, laughs hysterically when he needs yeah. to use the restroom. So it's like, oh, you need to use the restroom and give them those, that, you know, those words and understanding of what their body is, is doing at that time. Yeah, I think that I think there are a lot of great tools out there that makes me think about that empathy piece, right? Because we've all had that experience where we get nervous or we get worried about something and then we get those all over body chills where we sort of feel icy, cold and tingly, right? And I think that some of those, you know, like understood.org has a great one. There's one out of the UK that's great um, where there are video simulations that help you sort of see through the eyes of someone who might have trouble in a space or in an environment regularly and and managing all of that sensory input. Um, And Lori, that's such a great, I think the more that we can be empathetic, the better, you know, because that, so the sensory stuff, what I'm sort of hearing everybody say is that it's sort of your low hanging fruit. Like that's where you need to start with our students. When we have behaviors popping up in the classroom that we can't understand or describe, start there. Is that what I'm hearing us say, (laughs) essentially? Yes. Yes, I, I would say it's the basic. Uh, it's the basis for for all the de- the other things to develop from. So the sensory system system, and then the motor system, and then all the way climbing up the pyramid to academic uh, academic learning, like what Laurie said. But um, if you're seeing a sensory problem in older kids, also do assume that it's not just purely sensory. So, you know, at the beginning, it might be a sensory um, challenge that's causing the behavior, but through time, some kids learn that if they do certain thing, they get certain consequences. So it could also be a, a social behavior thing, but, mm. you know, it's always good to assume that it's sensory first, because if you fix it there and it's gone, then 
awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's your starting point for investigating, right? Okay. Yes. I want to do the flip side. We talked about when students' motors are running really high. What about, I'm thinking about Matt in secondary. What about when students' motors are running really low? <laughs> what can we do to help them become more alert? Flatlining. <laughs> Flatlining. <laughs> yes. Oh, um, I would go to the vestibular sense. Uh, so, so we talked about how running high and we go to proprioceptive. Um, running low, I would say go to the, the vestibular sense. So, so to wake up the nervous system, a lot of head movement, um, adding contrast to everything, brighter lights, you know, more up and down with your tone of voice, um, you know, to, to wake them up, you know, give them a little change of scenery or change of you know, approach. Um, yeah. <laughs> so like this morning to wake up my class, because we went back onto Zoom this morning, I started off with the Boomtown Rats. I don't like music Mondays blaring out at them. Yeah. But okay. I guess <laughs> I'm like, let's just own it. But at the same time, it's like, let's try and inject, you know, using music to actually inject a bit of energy into the day. Yeah. I love and before, and before it, I was doing yeah. dance for the kids at the start of every Zoom. Yep. I mean, and they were just so embarrassed. I'm like, oh, I was having a great time, you know, but yeah. <laughs> I, I'm regulating. You could try as well. But I guess as well, you know, humor aside, I do send kids out for breaks and I, I get to the point where like, I refuse to let them be in the room. I'm like, you have to leave this room because there just needs to be, even if there's minimal movement, I want something, you know, you'll increase the oxygen to your brain, you'll wake up a yes. bit, you know, go and just put water over your face, whatever you need, go and get a cookie or a snack. But yeah, I- Yeah. <clears throat> well, even me here, I'm just like, I get so, because now I work from home, I'm on the computer all day long. Um, uh, not, un, not unlike many of you now, but, um, but I just get so low. And so I go outside nature. Oh, breathe, nature. Fresh yeah. air is just so essential. Just get that peace, yeah. you know, and a walk. I feel, I feel like OTs, Kira, I feel like you guys are magicians. And I had an OT one time tell me that for a student, when they weren't alert in the classroom, when they were really hitting that sort of falling asleep phase, they said, even if it's a moment where you can't get them up for full body movement, they told me to have them with their eyes. And this is, I wish we could see this, but look up at the ceiling, down at the floor, rapidly up and down and then left and right, because that occipital nerve that like that movement in the eye will send a message to the brain to wake up. It's that that's like one of those kind of like, I know, right? Laurie's doing it now. I wish we could see. But that, I don't that, want like, to because I'm going to bed after this. I'm like, I'm not going to try it now. I'm going to try it in the morning. <laughs> so I feel Laurie, like, go ahead. How's it working? <laughs> <laughs> that like yeah, up, down, up, down, left, right, left, right. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is stimulating like the nervous system for sure. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's amazing. All right. So let's wrap up with our favorite sensory trick or nugget or little piece of knowledge. What has been in all of your journeys, the thing about sensory stuff that you just use all the time you love, tell me your sensory tricks. <laughs> okay. My, mine's the, the one I, the one I always go for. And the one that I've said, if you forget everything else, heavy lifting. 
heavy lifting mm, is a great yeah. one to have and and for when working with younger kids try and pretend it's a job like oh can you take this yeah. ream of <laughs> paper to the office and the office will send them back with another ream of paper you know but <laughs> or can you take these books to the hmm, library you know anything which involves sort of heavy lifting or a lot of pressure like the push-ups the sit-ups anything like that which uses a lot of heavy muscle work totally that's mine Ab absolutely well, Matt Kira, what about mine. you or Lori? Lori Diddy? Yes. Oh. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. Um, Rick, I can I'll, pick I'll another go, one. I'll go ahead with the uh, you, the upper level students when I taught middle school. Um, a simple, simple one is just to tie a bungee cord around the bottom of the chair yeah. legs so the That's student young. has a, a place to you know, push out that energy. I, um, I, that's a tried and true, tried and true tool that I used for many years and was always quite successful. So basically Absolutely. the student sort of sticks his leg or her leg behind the court and then they try to kick it and that provides. And that provides proprioceptive input. So you may have noticed here that we got cut off. We had some weird technology glitch and the rest of our podcast stopped recording. So what I did was I had Kira and Aaron record their favorite sensory tools. So here we go. One of my favorite um, sensory tricks is just to be really aware um, of the power of my voice, particularly in a moment where I'm helping a child to de-escalate from heightened emotionality. Um, so I think that being really cognizant of that moment, uh, what that child is going through, I lots of times choose to stop speaking because my voice isn't adding in that situation. My voice is overcomplicating and probably escalating the situation. Um, so in a de-escalation process, while I am maintaining safety, um, I really am, try to be really, really careful of um, limiting my verbalizations, um, turning the lights down, avoiding eye contact, really just sort of giving that child some space um, to take some deep breaths and to begin the calm down process um, before I interact with them verbally. I've already shared my favorite sensory trick, which was using the office chair. Um, you can spin on the chair. You can push it like um, like a trolley. You can even do a wheelbarrow walk on it. You know, put your legs up and then walk with your arms. Um, I also use a lot of singing because I work with a lot of younger kids, and uh, singing can be both stimulating or calming depending on the song or the tune that you choose and depending on the tone or the volume that you choose as well. So I really like using um, singing in my therapy sessions. I also, from experience, I believe that if you form a good relationship with the child first, you know, making sure they know that you respect their sensory needs, uh, or their sensitivities, um, make them know that uh, they can advocate for themselves and that you're there to support them is is the trick that that has worked well for me over all these years. Um, I also do a lot of rhythmic 
um, activities with the kids like clapping, stomping. Sometimes we do like body per percussion or a little dance as well. Um, those are the tricks that I like using. Again, many apologies for those tech errors. We hope you enjoyed today's show on sensory processing. We had a great time. And as always, if you have any ideas for future podcasts, let us know. We'd love to hear from you.